What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We are now in the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, as we work through this great prophecy together. When you find Isaiah, chapter 39, we're going to read the whole of it this morning. So let's stand up on our feet as we recognize that God's word is perfect, it is infallible, it is inerrant, authoritative, inspired in all that it says, the very word of God, Isaiah chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. Hear now the word of the great and living God. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom, they, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. And you may be seated. So I played all the, uh, the sports that kids play, t-ball, basketball, soccer, but I really latched on to some of the more aggressive sports in middle school and high, high school. I joined the wrestling team and I loved wrestling, in fact. Even after that, into my adulthood, I, I trained at a boxing gym for a little bit and, and then even in my 30s, I started taking karate. There's something about the fighting sports that... I like the aggressiveness of all that. And I'll tell you this, in the, uh, in the fighting sports, you will sometimes experience um, what happens when a very, very good fighter, a wrestler or a boxer, um, is exposed. 
And by exposed in fighting parlance or wrestling parlance, we mean that, that this combatant who was perceived by everybody as a very difficult to beat opponent, a very tough opponent, sometimes what happens is somebody will finally beat that man and from then on, everybody else will use the same pattern to beat the man in the same way. And we, we say that that person has then been exposed. And so if you know anything about wrestling, uh, for instance, you might be very good wrestler on your feet or maybe on the top position, but some guys, when they're down on the bottom, they can't get up. And then they say that that guy has been exposed and you know how to beat him from now on. Same thing happens in boxing. There was a big boxing match last night. I'm not sure if you're aware. But sometimes in boxing, a man will be very difficult to beat. And then somebody will figure out the right pattern. Maybe a southpaw is what it takes to beat him. Or maybe pressuring him into the corner is what it takes to beat him. And then everybody else who watches that, they see the pattern. And this man has been exposed. And that's how they will beat him again in the future. And so something very similar, though, happens in the spiritual world in Christianity and you may have experienced this in your own life. There are times when a men or women who are very strong in the faith, who appear to have everything together, and you know people like this, don't you? Every, they look great on the outside. They seem like they've got all of life figured out. They're those super Christians. And then something happens to them and they're exposed. And what I mean by that is the real heart, the heart that they've been hiding from the world, is finally shown to be what it actually is, and they experience a series of defeats, perhaps to temptation or to sin. And I can think of any number of examples that this happened to the men and women of Scripture. Think of mighty King David. This is the king who defeated Goliath, right? King David? Invincible? It's a guy who defeated Goliath, who defeated the Amalekites and the Philistines innumerable times. But then later in his life, his heart was exposed for the pride that he had in the matter of the census. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 24. And he brought judgment into the nation. His heart was exposed as being one that's filled with pride because of the census. So too with his son Solomon. Remember, Solomon is the one who asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him. God gave Solomon All of the wisdom that one could possibly ask. Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs, all glorifying God and his wisdom. And then his heart was exposed because he began to fall in love with foreign women. And the Bible says that he had hundreds of wives. And what was exposed was that he was a sex addict. That's the truth of the matter. And today in our passage with King Hezekiah, we're going to see a similar phenomenon where with a man who is otherwise a faithful man throughout the scriptures. We're going to watch him stumble all over himself as this situation exposes what was really in his heart all the time. Now, you're going to hear me say some negative things about Hezekiah today, but I want to frame this up properly because he's actually a very good king, all things considered. In fact, when we started this sermon series a while back, I told you that Isaiah the prophet ministers during the reign of four different kings, and I graded them. I graded, I gave each one of them a grade, and you can disagree with me if you want to, but I, uh, I gave Jotham an A as a faithful king. I gave Uzziah a B 
As a generally faithful king, I gave King Ahaz an F. He's obviously an utter failure, if you remember him. And then this king, Hezekiah, I gave him an A minus. And you probably wondered why I gave him an A minus. Well, today's text is why I gave him an A minus. So you're going to hear me say some negative things about Hezekiah. But I want to frame this up as honestly as possible. So let me turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. And you might do that with me if you have your Bible as well. Let's just be honest about who this man was. And then we're going to see the way that his heart was exposed in our text today. So 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, just to be fair, it does say in 2 Kings 18.3 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a general statement. Just generally speaking, he was a good king. Did what was right. Okay? 18.4 says he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. I'm not doubting that. He obviously showed great trust when he stared down the Assyrian king Sennacherib in the instance of the siege, which we've been studying for the last few weeks. Good job, Hezekiah. It says in verse 6 of the same chapter, he held fast to the Lord. Wonderful. Would that we all hold fast to the Lord. It says in verse 7 that the Lord was with him wherever he went and he prospered. Okay, so all of this is like A plus material, right? So why do I grade him an A minus? Well, the reason I graded him as, as an A minus is because of what happens in our text today in Isaiah chapter 39. You're going to see his heart exposed. And we've got to be careful here because the one thing that I need you to know is, how, is that this might and probably will happen to all of us in the room. At some point, there will be a situation or a circumstance that though you appear to have it all together on the outside, will show the world who you really are. And that's a terrifying thought. That scares me to death. It should you too. So let's go back to our main text in Isaiah chapter 39. And what we're going to do today is incredibly simple. We're simply going to work through this whole chapter, chapter 39, a verse or two at a time. And I want to point out four ways that the heart of Hezekiah is exposed for what it is. And as we think of these things, we are also thinking about the possibility that that exposes something about us. So this sermon is just as much about you and me as it is about Hezekiah. Fair? Everybody with me on that? All right, so let's dig into Isaiah 39 and verse 1. And here's my first main point. I'm going to have four main points today. If you want to write them down, there's going to be four. Number one, how susceptible the vain are to flattery. How susceptible the vain are to flattery. Look at verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick. We studied that last week with David's ministry, right? Pastor O'Leary preached on this text, the, the sickness and the healing of Hezekiah. Merodach Baladan hears about that. And he sends him letters and an envoy and presents, hearing that he had recovered. And look at verse 2. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Well, wouldn't you? How susceptible the vain are to flattery. I'll never forget, uh, I was in third grade, and the cute girl in the class was sitting behind me. And I was wearing a hoodie. And the cute girl in the class made one of those cute little origami notes. You know how girls used to fold up the notes like that? And she put it in my hood. And I didn't even notice it until I came home 
And later on in the day, I, I took off the hoodie and this note fell out and there it is. And I opened it up and you know what it said? It said I was cute. It's 35 years ago, last time that's ever happened to me. Somebody said I was cute. I did not stop smiling for three weeks when I saw that note. How susceptible are the vain to flattery? Best three weeks of my life until she started flirting with the guy that sat next to her instead of in front of her, right? That's how vanity works. It's fleeting and short. Now, who in the world is Merodach Baladan? You're probably wondering that. That's a good question because he's only mentioned this time in Scripture. You don't blame yourself if you have no idea who Merodach Baladan is. But this is very important to understand the historical context. Remember, the empire, the wicked, evil empire in the days of Isaiah and Hezekiah is who? Everybody say it together. Who is it? It's Assyria. That was underwhelming. Okay. Assyria. Now, Merodach Baladan is actually from the nation of Babylon. Babylon is on the way up. Assyria is soon going to be on the way down. And Merodach Baladan, we know from history, two times actually went to war with Assyria and won the city of Babylon back to the Babylonian people, otherwise known as the Chaldeans. Okay? So this warrior, Merodach Baladan, two times he faced off with the toughest imperial power on the face of the planet, with Assyria, and beat them. Now, Merodach Baladan two times won the city of Babylon back for the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, and everybody looked on that and said, wow, that's pretty impressive. Fact of the matter is, two times he won the city, two times he also lost the city, but at least for a while, Merodach Baladan was the cool new guy on the block. He was the rebel. Uh, he was the guy who punched the empire in the nose two times and bloodied it. And soon enough, we are going to see that Assyria comes down and Babylon is going to rise. And so when Hezekiah sees that envoys, notice that it's plural in the text. You, you see that? Look at verse, look at verse 1. Sent envoys, that's plural, at least two times, Merodach Baladan sent groups of men to flatter Hezekiah with letters, also plural, probably folded up in cute little origami, right? And a present, oh, vain people love presents. And Hezekiah is wooed by Merodach Baladan, the new kid on the block who punched Assyria in the nose. He is impressed, he is flattered. Oh, this is the best day of his life. Notice verse 2. He gladly welcomed them. Oh, come give us compliments. Merodach Baladan complimenting Hezekiah. Oh, you faced off the Assyrians too in the Jerusalem siege. Hezekiah flattering Merodach Baladan. Well, you beat him twice in Babylon, won back the city. And here are these two minor players congratulating themselves for what they had done, exchanging vanities and compliments. The vain are susceptible to flattery. It is the chink in their armor. If you know a vain person, the one part that they do not have guarded is flattery. They love to be flattered for their looks or their strength or their youth or their possessions or their intelligence or whatever else. Vain people love to be complimented. You ever see a Christian couple get divorced? I know you have. You ever see a Christian couple get divorced and, and you're saying to yourself, how did this happen? This couple's been together for 20 years. This, 
This is the Christian couple. They lead the Bible study, right? I've seen Christian couples that get divorced after 30 or more years of what appears to be faithful marriage. And when you see a marriage crumble after all this time, you've got to be asking yourself, like, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Well, sometimes it's money or something like that, but very often the reason that these marriages break up is because one or both of the people is vain. And what happens is that somebody younger or more attractive uh, or uh, somebody more aggressive perhaps in their office or their place of employment or whatever begins to give compliments to them flatters them about the smell of their perfume or their new hair or their suntan or their shape or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, that person who loves to be flattered thinks to themselves, you know, my spouse hasn't said anything like that for years. And all of a sudden, what happens is they find that their hearts are exposed for the vanity that's been there all the time. And that's how what appears to be good marriages very often fail. The vain love what? Themselves. And if anybody comes along and tells them how wonderful they are, oh, that arrow is going to go right between the armor and the chest. And so Hezekiah here, and probably some of us, if the Lord isn't gracious to us, would fall in the exact same way. Vanity through flattery. Let's go on to number two. Big point number two. How prone are materialists to boasting? How prone are materialists to boasting? Look at verse two again. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Notice verse two is almost exclusively about stuff, right? Property, possessions, riches. And what does Hezekiah do when these envoys from Baladan, uh, from Merodach, Baladan, and Babylon, they come to flatter him? Hezekiah begins like a fool. No king would do this. Like a fool, he welcomes them in and he begins to show them all of the secrets of Jerusalem, the city. Now, it is fairly common in international politics to invite somebody for a tour of the city. That's one thing, no problem there. Okay, that happens. But notice what Hezekiah does. He shows them absolutely everything. The silver, the gold. Let's go to the bank. I'll take you right inside. Let's go in and I'll show you the vault. Here's the combo. You guys have vaults like this in Babylon? Look at our stuff. Look at our gold. What else? The gold, the spices. You like spice? We've got old spice, cinnamon spice. We've got spices. You like oil? You want to see our oils? We've got all kinds of oils. We've got olive oil. We've got essential oils. We've got motor oil. And then he shows them the armory. Who does this? Here's where our weapons are kept. Here's our swords and our spears. And here's where we keep our our chariots. And here's our war horses. And here's where we train our young men to be warriors. Do you remember when, do you remember the night that we killed Osama bin Laden? Remember this? You can't forget that, right? And there was this daring raid and we we killed Osama bin Laden. But one thing went wrong in this raid, if you remember the story, is that one of our helicopters clipped the wall on the way in. 
when SEAL Team 6 came down, clipped the wall, and the helicopter was damaged, and we couldn't take it back. So we go in, we kill Osama bin Laden, daring, daring raid on our part. But before we left, do you remember what the United States did? We blew up our own chopper. Why did we do that? Because nobody gives up their military secrets. You do not give up your military secrets to your enemy. You know what happens with Babylon? You've heard of Babylon, right? You know what they do to Israel later? A hundred years later. It's going to be a while off. But they're going to remember the whole map of the city. And eventually, when Babylon is strong enough, and Assyria is off the map, and Babylon is the new world power, they're going to come back to that very same city, and they are going to raid it, and they are going to take absolutely everything that they saw there that day. In fact, go with me real quick. Let's do this fast. Let's go to 2 Chronicles, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36. We're just going to pick up a paragraph here, but I want to show you the fulfillment of this prophecy because exactly what Isaiah says is going to happen is precisely what did happen. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 uh, look at verse 17 of that chapter. Therefore, now this is years after Hezekiah's time, mind you. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. And he gave them all into his hand. And look at this, verse 18. All the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and all of his princes, all these things he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious vessels. Everything that Hezekiah showed Merodach Baladan and his envoys will later be stolen from them 100 plus years later. Everything. The gold, the silver. By the way, uh, not only the king's palace, but the temple too. You know what's in the temple? What's in the very center of the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. It's the last time we ever hear of the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture. Except for in the New Testament references to it. Babylon took it. They took it. They took everything. And that, that's why... Boasting in material possessions is absolutely foolish. Not only that, but it exposes the heart of the man who loves his things. Hezekiah was proud of his stuff and he could not restrain himself from boasting. If you know somebody who is a materialist and they happen to get a new truck or a new RV or a new boat, you got to block them on social media because you know what they're going to be bragging about for the next six months, right? And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money, Matthew 6, 24. Can't do it. Jesus again, quoting Luke 12, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure 
in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So the vain are susceptible to flattery and materialists are prone to boasting and it will be their downfall. Let's go on to the third point. Number three, how resistant are the proud to rebuke? How resistant are the proud to rebuke? Now, back to the main text, Isaiah 39. Somebody walks in. Who is it? It's not Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, Hezekiah's friends. No. person who walks in is Isaiah, the prophet, the man of God, the fearless, bold, gospel-preaching man of God who never shies from saying what is true and right. right? He, no fear in Isaiah. Can't fault him for that. Isaiah walks up to the king. And we read this in verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where did they come to you from? And Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, At least he's honest here, right? They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Now, um, Isaiah's not asking this question because he doesn't know. He knows the answer. Okay? It's kind of like when God interviews Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they fell. God knows where they are. Okay? He knows what has happened. But what's happening here is that Isaiah is playing the role of the attorney here, and he's asking leading questions so that Hezekiah is forced to testify against himself. Hezekiah is being forced to explain what he has done. That's what's happening here. Isaiah knows what happened. Okay, But the proud are resistant to rebuke. They don't always get it. Proud people sometimes don't even know when they're being rebuked, for goodness sakes. And when rebuke comes, it often bounces right off of them. Now, what Hezekiah should have said right here in this moment is, I can't believe I just did this. I just... I just let Merodach Balhan with a tour of the city to see absolutely everything we had. How can we repair this? How can we change the locks? How can we change the passwords? We're going to need to refortify ourselves and our city and our armory. We need, to, we need to prepare lest this same group come back against us. After all, if Merodach Baladan was known for one thing, it was an aggressive raid twice against an imperial power. Who's to say Merodach Baladan isn't going to do exactly the same thing to Hezekiah? But he doesn't get it. He doesn't even, get, it doesn't even appear that he's aware that Isaiah is rebuking him here in this moment. As it turns out, most of us don't like to be corrected, do we? I don't. Do you? You like it when somebody rebuke? Probably not. But rebuke is absolutely the thing that we need at certain times in our lives. We need to be rebuked, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll give you three reasons, A, B, and C. A, because rebuke points out what we can't see about ourselves. Did you know that? You, nobody has a 360-degree perspective on ourselves. Nobody has an omniscient understanding of how others perceive us. We're all somewhat driving with blind spots in our lives. It's like we don't have the mirrors to check our corners and our blind spots. We don't always know what people think about us. 
Sometimes we come off as rude or arrogant or, or proud, and we don't see that in ourselves, and we don't even know it until somebody loves us enough to tell us the truth. That's rebuke. So A, sometimes uh, rebuke points out what we can't see. B, sometimes rebuke points out what we don't want to see. We know it. We just don't want to admit it. I have a feeling that as Isaiah is taking Hezekiah through this what happened dialogue, that Hezekiah might have had it dawn on him exactly the foolishness of his error. But then see, and this is the scary one, sometimes rebuke points out what we refuse to see in ourselves. We know it's there. We're sure it's there. But what are we going to do when somebody rebukes us? We're going to double down with confirmation bias and pride and arrogance and a lot of times what we do when we're rebuked or we're corrected is we instead, we, we turn the mirror on the person who loves us enough to show us the truth and we begin attacking them. Will you do this? Will you do that? Right? Most of us, we hate to be rebuked. And proud men almost can't be rebuked because they just won't accept it. Thankfully, we do have some models of Scripture of men who were rebuked and actually repented. I think of David. I picked on David a little bit earlier. But at least when David failed in the Bathsheba incident and he was rebuked by the prophet Nathaniel, remember this, Psalm 51? David writes the most glorious, humble prayer of repentance that we have in all the Scripture, Psalm 51. It's a beautiful prayer of repentance. And Peter too, right? Peter... I was told by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, no, I'll, I'll die with you before that happens. And it happened. But then there's a scene in Luke 22 where the cock crows for the third time. And Peter realizes that, that what has said has actually come true. And the scripture says that Jesus looked at him. And that's all it took. And Peter breaks down. And the scripture says he wept bitterly. It was just a look from Christ. And that's all it took to break the heart of Peter. And for most of the rest of the Bible... Peter messes up again a little bit, but for most of the rest of the book of Acts, Peter is bold and fearless from that moment on. Now let's look at the rebuke that Isaiah brings to Hezekiah here, and then we'll wrap up with a final point in just a moment here. But let's start in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, now notice this, this is a key, key phrase here, key text, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. So here comes the prophetic denunciation. This is, this is prophet preaching language here in verse 5. And then Isaiah predicts this, verse 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now we saw that that actually happened in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Remember, we just looked that up. Isaiah was exactly right. Verse 7, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do I need to explain what that means? That's not good. Okay, we, hopefully we don't need to explain that, but that's not good. Now, in fairness, the Bible and especially the books of Kings and Chronicles, does not lay the blame of the exile exclusively on Hezekiah's shoulders. I'm not saying that, and, and neither, neither should you. The Bible lays the blame 
for the exile that is going to happen from Babylon many years later uh, across the shoulders of many of the kings of Judah. Especially in including Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who's a total disaster. He's another F-grade king. I mean, Hezekiah is an A-minus king in my estimation. I'm not saying that the exile is entirely Hezekiah's fault. Okay, so don't, don't hear me say that. What I am saying is that Hezekiah's response to what Isaiah says here is dismally poor. It is the worst moment, in my view, of Hezekiah's entire reign right here. You could disagree with me. I'm open to correction. But, but what does he say back to Isaiah when, when Isaiah tells him that the, the land is going to be scorched, Babylon is going to rise in power, they're going to come basically to destroy the city, rip all of the gold out of it, Right? emasculate his own sons and force them to serve as eunuchs in the kingdom. What does Hezekiah say? Verse 8, this is stunning in its degree. The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good, he thought. Is it good? Is this good? You call this good news? Why is this good? Explain to me why the city being destroyed and your sons becoming eunuchs is a good thing. This is good, he says. No, it's not good, Hezekiah. This is not good. Explain why you think it's good. Because, and then here it is. There will be peace and security in my days. How short-sighted is this? How selfishly short-sighted in his perspective? The fourth way that Hezekiah is exposed here is that the short-sighted are exposed, excuse me, the selfish are exposed as being short-sighted in their view. Um, let me put it this way. You don't trade one today for a hundred tomorrows. That's not a good deal. Esau learned this lesson when he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. You remember that story in Genesis? You don't trade one today for a thousand tomorrows. That is not a good deal. You might think about some of the things that are happening in our nation as we ponder this for a moment. That's not a good deal to trade peace for my days, for disaster in the days of my children and my own grandchildren. That's not a good deal. That's not good, Hezekiah. But see, very, very selfish people, they often think exclusively of their own time and their own peace and their own affluence and their own security. And that's why we're going to finish up today in Luke chapter 12. So let's go to our last text this morning, Luke 12. This is the text that Elder Bill read to us in our New Testament reading today. The parable of the rich fool. He's called a fool for a reason. Right? He's called a fool. Because, look at 12, 16. And he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Look at all of my crops. And he said, I will, I will do this. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, look at this. Look at this inner dialogue here. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
But, verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? How selfish and short-sighted it is to think that the peace and security that you might have for this brief moment in time is going to last for any longer than tonight. Because what does God say to him? You fool, your soul will be demanded of you this very night. And in all of these ways, Hezekiah and the rich fool here in Luke chapter 12 are exposed what is in their heart has been revealed to the world. And this could happen to absolutely any one of us, which is why we need the covering of Christ. Because our hearts have so many gaps. There's so many weaknesses. There's so many cracks in the heart. There's so many fissures in the sinful human heart. The only solution to all of this is to have your life covered by the goodness and the mercies of Jesus Christ. You need Christ. Are you not aware? How desperate is your condition for the great and living Christ? who was crucified for us, who was raised again, who was ascended to the right hand of the Father. The reason why we will be exposed is because we're so weak in all of these areas and if we don't have Jesus, then God will one day say to us, you fool, your soul will be demanded of you. So I hope that you have Christ. I hope that you know him. I hope that he's covered you in his blood. I hope that he's covered you in his grace, covered you in your mercies. Let's pray together and we're going to sing our final and concluding hymn today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for him crucified. Lord, you know all the weaknesses of our hearts and we can only pray that your Holy Spirit would seal us unto the day of redemption, protecting and preserving us for you and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's grab our hymnals. We're going to stand up as we conclude this morning. We're going to stand and sing the latter part of hymn number 164. We're going to do verses 5 and 6 together. So take out your hymnal, let's stand, and we'll sing, and then we'll receive the benediction in a moment. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.